Um, let me ask you a little poll question this morning. Not question about a poll um, or a poll cat. Have you ever had really good intentions and you got into something and you're doing real good and you're focused and then you get discouraged by something? Amen. Yeah. Or something happens and it makes you afraid. Anybody hear the thunder last night? Did that make anybody afraid? Hey, let me tell you what, that was some like roof rocking thunder. It made me think of a time when I was, I can't remember if I was, I think I was sixth or seventh grade. I was about, yeah, that, that would have been about right. There was one of those end of time prophecy things that was happening at that time. It, the world was supposed to end on a certain date. And, well, that night, there was a big thunderstorm. And when I say big thunderstorm, I mean big thunderstorm. So I'm laying in bed. I've been kind of nervous all day about this end of world thing. You know, I'm thinking, well, what if, you know? And man, the biggest clap of thunder woke me up. And I jumped up out of the bed and started to run out into the hall to see what was going on. I ran into the door frame. Boom! <laughs> And I continued to run out into the hall, holding my head, <laughs> thunder and lightning everywhere. I was scared, y'all. And then I'm like, what in the world? And I went back to bed. I went to sleep. So the world didn't end, in case you were wondering. We're not in the sequel. Uh, we're still in the last chapter. But fear, discouragement. I'm afraid they're pretty constant companions, aren't they? We've been talking about uh, the book of Nehemiah in our uh, Sunday morning services. And these folks have come back to Jerusalem. They, they had been exiled at the time of the Babylonian exile. And then the Persians overtook the Babylonians. And then Cyrus the king arose and said, anybody wants to go back to Jerusalem can go back to Jerusalem. So a lot of people did. Things went all right as they tried to rebuild the temple, and then they stopped that, and they come back and they finished the temple. That was order business number one. And then we looked at Esther, um, and we saw that it kind of got kind of cool to be a Jew in the Persian Empire because the queen was Jewish, the king's right-hand man, Mordecai, was Jewish, and God delivered the Jews in a miraculous way, or a providential way was, is more accurate. And so it was pretty cool to be a Jew. Well, then we meet this guy, Nehemiah. And he is the cupbearer to the king. And he got a report that things in Jerusalem weren't going very well. That the walls were tore down and the gates were burned. And it tore him up. And he's like, I've got to get back there. So we've chronicled his journey to this point. He's been back in Jerusalem and he's motivating people. And the people had a, they made a decision to rise up and build. We will rise up and build. And it's like you can hear the, the thunderous applause and the dramatic music. And, da, da, da. and then last week, we saw who built what section of the wall. And we'll talk about it here in a minute. Last week didn't fit into the narrative. So let's go back to the narrative that we saw at the end of chapter 2. The people had decided to rise up and build. And everybody was in solidarity and... There were hugs and back slaps and high fives and fist bumps and head butts all around. Everybody's pumped and they're going to build the wall. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to get started on that wall and there's going to be some opposition because there's always opposition. 
we are talking about and trying to focus on the work of God for us individually, for us corporately in this day and time. And what I want to proclaim to you today is there will always be opposition to the work of God. And what we want to look at today is how to overcome that opposition, how to overcome that fear and stay the course. So let me pray. And our public reading today will just be the first two verses of Nehemiah 4, but we'll work through the whole chapter. Yes? Would you pray, would you pray for Amanda? I forgot that I meant to, to do that when I was up there. Yes. Okay, Miss Miss Linda Buttram had a eye surgery, and they're on their way to Charleston now because her eye is still bleeding. So he's asking if we'll pray for that when we pray. So yes, I will. And so pray with me. God, we come and we say thank you this morning. We've already sang thank you. We've already participated in the table with you. We who once were your enemies have been seated at your table. So yes, we do sing and say thank you. And now, God, we come and say thank you for your word. God, what a, what a miracle it is that we have this book. And what a miracle it is that we have your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and the power to live out what we see today. Those are the things that we thank you for as we approach this time. And God, we do lift up uh, Miss Linda to you. God, we pray that you would touch her physically. Do something supernatural, God, to heal her eye, to give her the grace and the healing that she needs. Father, help us to be those who pray and do. And I pray that for Linda. I pray that you would work a miracle, and I pray that you would bring people around her who can do the things that she needs done as well. Give her grace and heal her, God. And bless us in our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Again, we're just going to read the first two verses. Or let's say three. Let's say three. We'll read the first three verses as the public reading, and then we'll get into the discourse. So, Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. You may be seated. Yeah, discouragement, opposition, fear. You see it real quick, don't we? We left chapter 2. Let's rise up and build. And what do we see instantly in chapter 4 after the kind of parenthesis there in chapter 3? We see opposition. Instantly. So that triumphant feel of last week, because last week we actually saw the, the, the wall finished. But again, that was an overview. So, that, so get out of your mind. The wall is not finished. They are building the wall. So that triumphant feel to last week and even at the end of chapter 2, it's good to remember because we saw their teamwork and synergy and completion and a lot of good things. And it showed who did what, where, and we focused on why they did it, right? But that was not in the narrative. So now we get some detail of what happened while all of what we saw last week was happening. 
And the first thing we see in the process is what? Opposition. Fear, discouragement. And we've met this guy Sanballat before, back in chapter 2. Remember Skippy and Toby? Yeah, Sanballat and Tobiah. So Sanballat and his buddy Tobiah, and they had an ally named Geshem who was an Arab. Remember those guys? We met all those guys. They were the bad guys. That's where the bad guy music plays when you hear these guys' names. Yeah, we can boo and hiss them. Well, he's back. Sanballat's back, and, and actually they're, they're back with, with friends. But I, I, we didn't talk about in that passage who this Sanballat guy was. He just seems like a grumpy old troll, right? I mean, you know, oh, 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 yeah. But he was, actually, he was actually the governor of Samaria. And Samaria was the area. Samaria was the area. See what I did there? I didn't mean to. Was the area above Jerusalem, the land above Judah. So you got Judah and then you got Samaria. You've, y'all have heard of Samaritans before, right? The Samaritans were those who had intermarried with people, it was Jewish people who had intermarried with people whom the kings of Babylon and Persia had migrated into that area after they took captivity captive and sent people into exile. They had to have people in the land, so they kind of transplanted people. So the Samaritans were, I mean, for lack of a better word, they were half-breeds. Okay, They were half-Jewish and half-something else. That's why the Jews despised them, because they weren't pure Jews. They were half-blood Jews. Everybody's got Harry Potter references running through their mind. So they were mudbloods, okay? So Samaria was the area just above Jerusalem, just above Judah. And Sanballat was the governor or the leader of that uh, land area called Samaria. And from what I've seen in my research, he was pretty much the power broker in the area. He was the guy. Okay, There are a lot of other satraps and governors and princes, but Sanballat, he was the guy. He was, he was the one that, that everybody looked to and respected, and he had the power, and he was probably pulling some strings behind the scenes to make sure he maintained that power. So for the Jews to come in and build a wall around Jerusalem would be for them to exert some power and influence for themselves. And if they develop power and influence... Who has less power and influence? Our guy Sanballat, right? So Sanballat is probably having some letter slash power envy of Nehemiah because Nehemiah shows up and he's got letters directly from the king. And the king said, help this guy. Give him timber from the royal forest. Remember that? Help him any way that he needs help. Give him food. Give him the stuff that they need. So Sanballat's probably like, I don't like this guy. And I don't like his people. And so for them to be building a wall and for Nehemiah to be waving these letters around, he's probably like, yeah, this isn't going to happen on my watch. That's probably what Sanballat was probably thinking. Those in power tend to not want to give up that power. And Sanballat was going to do what he thought he needed to do in order to not lose his power and influence. So when he heard that the Jews were building a wall, it says he was greatly... Angry, us angry and greatly enraged. And he begins a campaign to stop this project. Now what does he start with? Jeering. Jeering. Now just the word, right? Jeer. Jeer kind of, kind of sounds... Eh. If you don't know what it means, jeering means that he was saying mean stuff. Okay? To them and about them. He was kind of making fun of them. Now that sounds infantile, right? But let me ask you a question. Does it work? 
You bet it does. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah, right. Anybody ever been hurt by words before? Anybody ever hurt somebody else with words before? You betcha. Words are extremely powerful and hurtful and discouraging. And Sanballat is kind of the embodiment of our enemy, Satan, who is known as the accuser of the brethren, right? How do you accuse people? With words. Can you just hear Satan standing before God saying, look what Jason did again. He's a sicko. He's a sinner. And I'm going, eh, well, he's not wrong. But here, the enemy Satan is embodied in and what and who Sanballat is. And the enemy knows the truth that words hurt. So he stands in the presence of his brothers, which could be his literal brothers or it could be his countrymen, and he stands in the presence of the army of Samaria. So he's not just talking, he's talking with some people in the background. Right? So he's kind of talking trash to and about the Jews. And words are one thing, but words in front of an intimidating crowd are something else altogether. I might be able to shrug something off if you come up and said something to me one-on-one. I don't like you. You look funny. Well, You're not the first person to say that. But in a crowd... Folks in school, are you scared of getting made fun of in a crowd? Getting teamed up? I talk to a lot of teenagers at the therapy place who are bullied. And that bullying means that people get in a group and they say mean stuff to them. Bad stuff to them. They write bad stuff about them on social media for all the world to see. So one-on-one, maybe we can shrug off a, a discouraging word, but with a crowd... Well, it just kind of multiplies exponentially, doesn't it? He calls them feeble Jews. What are these feeble Jews doing? He belittles their ability and frames them as selfish. Will they restore it for themselves? He attacks their religious hopes. Will they sacrifice? Which implies that not even God can help them. He's going to regret that, by the way. He minimizes their chances of finishing at all, much less quickly enough to actually be of help. Will they finish up in a day? And he makes the handicap of their lack of materials plain to them. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then, like bullies normally do, somebody else chimes in. His buddy, right? Tobiah, we'll call him Toby, Skippy's buddy Toby. Tobiah the Ammonite chimes in and mocks what they've done to this point and what he supposes will be their finished product. Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. These things they're saying are mean and they're effective and they're effective mostly because they're true. The Jews are feeble. Their work is partially for themselves. We've already talked about that. They are appealing to God for help. They are trying to get done in a hurry. Their raw materials are a lot of rubbish. And they weren't professionals. We saw that last week, right? And what they are building 
would never win one of those Greatest Wall Ever Awards. I've never seen a Greatest Wall Ever Award, but you know what I'm saying. So listen, what I want to point out there is this. The enemy knows how to point out the obvious. And the enemy loves to point us to the concrete facts that serve to demoralize and discourage us. And it works very well. Especially when we have our eyes on our physical situation. Facts are facts, and those facts presented with words toward us can surely immobilize us. Unless we do what Nehemiah does, right? Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So how did Nehemiah respond to their criticism and fact presenting? What did he do first? He prayed. He didn't banty with them. He didn't try to disprove their facts. He went to God. Now, that's pretty straightforward, right? When we're talking about fear and discouragement and when the facts are the facts and the truth is the truth and it's discouraging you, what should you do? You should go to God and pray. You say, well, we've said that a lot in Nehemiah. And we will. We have, we are, and we will. Nehemiah prayed. I told you you're going to see him pray a lot. And we see it clearly here. Remember the arrow prayers? Again, he doesn't try to dispute their facts. He just goes to God and appeals to Him. And that's what we should do. Instead of looking at and focusing on our situation, we need to bring our situation to God. And how does Nehemiah do this here? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. And that's true, right? He noted their situation and he was honest with God about it. And in noting the situation, he asks God to hear what is being said. But then look what he says. Turn back their own taunts, their taunts on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Is that all right? Is, Is this okay? Is this prayer all right? You're like, well, it's in the Bible. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. There's a lot of bad stuff in the Bible, right? Is this prayer okay? Nehemiah is asking that God would hold them guilty and not forgive them since they have provoked God to anger in the presence of the builders. Now I'm going to ask you, is this how we should pray for and about our enemies? I think the answer to that is yes and no. <coughs> Let me address the no first. Let me tell you why you shouldn't pray this way first. We are to honor the words of Jesus, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus says, hanging on a cross. So that would seem to indicate that we should not pray like Nehemiah prayed. But, in line with what we talked about here Wednesday night, and if you weren't here Wednesday night, good meeting. This series has been really good. We also have to be honest with God when we pray. 
We don't come wearing fancy prayer clothes, saying fancy prayer words, not saying what's on our hearts. We have to be honest with God. And I think that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing here. He was pouring out his heart to God and asking for what he wanted. Now some people say, well, it's all right because Nehemiah's just contending for the glory of God. And I think that's part of it. But I think overall, Nehemiah's just being real. He's mad. He's hurt. He's probably a little bit afraid. And he's confused. So he goes to God and he says what he wants. I don't know if Nehemiah knows how to do anything different. He's a pretty straightforward guy. He's just being real. So when enemies make him mad, he goes to God and he says what he's thinking and feeling. And guess what? So should we. Be honest in your requests to God. Tell Him how you're feeling. He knows anyway. So why not be honest with Him? Don't play act in your prayers for the fear of God finding you out. Newsflash, He done did that. He found you out before the foundation of the world. And He had a plan to save you. Let Him correct you in your attitude as you pray. Let Him correct you in your attitude as His will dictates. Be willing to be corrected and be honest. And contend for God's glory in your honesty. Listen, there's a lot of things going on out there today that should make us mad. And we need to take those things to God and express our anger about them. Because He's mad about them too. God's mad about this with Nehemiah and these Horonites and Arabs and Ashdodites. We're going to see them. And Ashdodites are my favorite. We're going to get to them in a minute. God's mad about this too. And we should be conformed to the image of His Son. Sometimes you've got to go over and you've got to turn over some tables in the temple. Don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to be honest and don't be afraid to be corrected if your attitude is wrong. And let God work you through a process where you will pray for your enemies and not despise them, but the things that they're doing. We'll get more to that later. So, what happened after Nehemiah prayed and he was honest with God? Nehemiah 4.6 So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Boom! Opposition comes, discouragement is raging, Nehemiah prays honestly, and then, so we built the wall. And herein lies a not so deep, but a very needed principle in doing the work of God. Listen to me, I prayed it for Linda. Pray and work. Pray and work. Nehemiah prayed and So we built the wall. And as a result, the wall was joined together to half its height. Now that's a huge milestone. We saw last week it was a mile and a half around this wall. And here they've got a mind to work. There's opposition. Nehemiah prays. They rise up. They build. And they get it halfway done. At least looks that way. And what a huge encouragement it must have been. Can you imagine the joy of closing that last gap, seeing the last sliver of light disappear between the last separation, and then feeling that sense of accomplishment. 
Again, not finished, but a very tangible, real goal attained. Completely halfway done. Let these jeers jeer. We're going to pray and we're going to work. And that's exactly what Nehemiah points out. This happened for the people had a mind to work. Grab a hold of that statement. If we are interested in doing the work of God in our day and time, individually, corporately, in southern West Virginia, we as the people of God have to have a mind to work. These people had a mind to work. The word mind here is literally rendered heart, meaning the inner seat of emotions. These people had it in them, in their very emotional and motivational center to do what? To work. And that word work means to exert oneself by doing mental or physical work for a purpose or out of necessity. These people cared enough to do what needed done. That's what that means. Do you care enough to do what needs done? Because if we're going to accomplish the work of God, you have to care enough, I have to care enough, we have to care enough to do whatever needs done. But I'm not a wall builder. Neither were they. These people cared enough to do what needed done. May it be said of us that when it comes to the work of God, for the glory of God, that we are people who care enough to do what needs done. Mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually saying, Here am I. Send me. And when we finish a task, we say, Here am I. Send me. Over and over and over and over again and again and again. What's next? Finish this one. What's next? What else would my Lord have me to do? Because I care enough to do what needs done. Not out of obligation or in an effort to parlay favor with God or to earn our salvation. Because that don't work, y'all. But because we love God and we love our neighbor like we love ourselves. It's really that simple. The work of God is about doing the next right thing for the glory of God and for the good of others. And like we talked about last week, with a thought of, what's in it for me? I get joy in doing God's will. I get to be exactly what He created me to be. I'm an image bearer of Jesus Christ. There's some joy there. This is all for God's glory, for the love of other people, and for my good. These people had a mind to work. So all's good, right? Cue the villain music, because Skippy and Toby are bringing buddies with them now, okay? Verses 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They stay angry. 
And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now they were before, but we've got some developments from our developments now. We've got a wall halfway done. We've got some energized Jews who have a mind to work. And so we've got a growing bunch of enemies who are getting angrier and more desperate. Now we've got Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. They're multiplying. Arabs and Ammonites and Ashdodites. So am I, right? Just so you know, I don't know if you'll be able to see this or not. So, purple is Judah. Okay, this is where Jerusalem's at. That's where all this activity's happening. Well, if you look to the north, you got Samaria. If you look to the left, Ashdod. To the right is Ammon, or Ammon, which is where Tobiah was from. To the south, you've got Idumea, which is where the Arabs were from. So these Jews are literally surrounded, outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, and surrounded on all fronts. Literally surrounded by those who are now actively opposing them. Once their enemies saw that the breaches were being closed and the Jews were not deterred from their work, it says that they all became very angry. And they didn't just get mad. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. This is literally terrorism. We'll fight and hurt and kill and bring chaos to this situation. We will stop you and your way of life and the work you are doing. And it's a coalition of non-Jews who are determined to make sure the Jews don't do what they're trying to do. Physical violence and battles and terrorist threats are coming. How do the Jews respond? Verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So much in that one verse. As has been the case every time something was brewing, Nehemiah and his mates pray. They prayed to God. That's good. But that's not all they did. They prayed to their God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. The spiritual folk would say all you had to do was pray. But what did they do? They prayed and they set a guard as protection against them day and night. Pray and work. Pray and act. Pray and set a guard. Ask God to act and act. There are times to watch and pray. There are times to pray and wait. And there are times to pray and do something. Nehemiah knew the difference. And he did both simultaneously. And so things get better, right? Yeah. Verse 10. In Judah, now that's where they're at. Okay, I'm sorry, pointing to map that is gone. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By, now here, look at this word, ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now we've had threats from the outside, but now it's inside. <coughs> now things start to unravel from the inside. 
With the threats swirling around them and the work progressing, but still very hard, reports start filtering in that the workers are losing heart. That their strength is failing and that there's just too much rubble and by themselves, by ourselves, we are not going to be able to finish this work. Uh-oh. I think we can look at an outside enemy. A common enemy unites people, right? But when it starts to be grumbling in our own tents, when it starts to come from within, man, that's when it really, really really gets tough to overcome. And I've seen it in every church I've ever been a part of. Somebody's concerned about something. And they start talking to their buddy. At church sometimes, sometimes they'll text them, sometimes they'll call them, sometimes they'll stand over the backyard fence. I'm just really concerned. I don't think we can do this. Yeah, I hear you. I've felt the same way. Every church I've ever been a part of. Much harder to overcome that than it is the outside observer who's just cheering at you or even threatening violence at you. Who was it that betrayed Jesus? Walked up and kissed Him. Rabbi. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now the question is, were these things really being said or were people saying that people were saying these things to stir up trouble? I think it was both, by the way. There are surely some grumblers among them. People are getting tired. Surely some grumblers, there always are, there always will be. Always. And with the non-Jewish opposition getting so upset and active, there must have been some interference being run and inroads being made to disrupt things from the inside. Outside opposition is one thing, but when it comes from those who are shoulder to shoulder with you every day, and when those who have a mind to work suddenly start showing some hesitation, that's when things really start getting hard to deal with. Enemies inside the gate are much worse than enemies outside the gate. Things is getting hairy in Jerusalem, y'all. Verse 11, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them, and kill them and stop the work. This is escalating, folks. Okay? You can't build a wall. It's turned into, I'm going to kill you. And people inside are saying, maybe we should stop. But here the enemies are threatening covert operations to get into the inside, which sounds like they've got some contacts there, and sneak into the area and kill them. Now this is scary. I mean, I'm sure people are thinking, we're just building a wall. They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Not just attack, not just harm, not just scare, but sudden sneaking death threats. It's hard to work when you're looking over your shoulder all the time. It's hard to work when you're afraid you're going to turn around the corner with a big wheelbarrow full of gravel and somebody's going to cut your head off. Right? Slows you down. I mean, it would be. Let's go build. Maybe we'll get killed today. That'll be great. Inside, outside, and inside again. 
Verse 12. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So what's happened here is people from all around Jerusalem, from the neighboring towns and stuff, have come into Jerusalem to help build the wall. Well, there's still wives and kids and stuff out here in the towns that aren't in Jerusalem. And they're saying, hey, you need to come back home. We heard it's getting yucky there. We heard there's threats of death. And we're not doing so good back here, back at home ourselves. You need to come home. And it says that they said it ten times. I don't know if they said that's literal or if it's just great day ten times. You've asked me that ten times. Anybody ever said that before? On the second time? All right, that's enough. That's ten times. It's a magic trick. (laughs) Come home. Freaky things are going on. It's scary and I'm afraid for you and I'm afraid for us. You must return to us. Now again, I would ask, is this just a familial concern or is there more going on? Okay, Maybe the enemy couldn't get inside the wall, but man, they could spread out here and drop some seeds of discontent, right? Let me, let's look in chapter 6 real quick to show that I think this is going on. Look here, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Time out! Is he good? Is he a nice guy? Is he for this wall building project? No. So the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Arah and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam the son of Berechiah as his wife. There's that intermarriage stuff y'all. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, Nehemiah says, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now that's in chapter 6. So that shows that there's some things going on behind the scenes where maybe these complaints from the surrounding area of Judah may not have been completely just from inside. Seems like some Jewish nobles had some inside connections with the enemies of God's people. And if they could possibly disrupt the work with things like concerned family and friends and good old-fashioned kinfolk love, they would certainly do it, don't you think? Either way, morale is lowering and threat levels are raising. So what does Nehemiah do now? What do you think he does? Well, you're wrong. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. No praying this time. Just immediate action. And the action is pretty interesting. He does something very logical. He stations people in the lowest parts of the wall and in open places. Okay, that makes sense. The weakest places. But what people did he put there? I stationed the people by their clans. Did you catch that? Just like the families who built near their homes that we looked at last week, now the families are defending the area near their homes. All this familial fear has led Nehemiah to bringing families together to stand guard and even possibly fight together for the area near their homes. Now imagine the scene. Families outside their homes, it says, with swords, 
their spears, and their bows. Now, in West Virginia, we can picture that, right? We don't have a problem with that. Like, oh yeah, I'm a my neighbor. But, but this is really kind of a peculiar thing. So they're sitting on the front porch and they're armed to the teeth. And Nehemiah says, you take this section, your whole family, and you guard this part of the wall. Hmm. Nothing motivates us like our families. And rightly so. So Nehemiah mobilizes the families to be his security team. But he's not done. 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah, as the leader, rallies his people. He's already rallied the families. Now he approaches the nobles and the officials, the leaders, and the rest of the people. He commands them to not be afraid. Now that helps, right? I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> that, it, 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 that doesn't work, okay? Don't be afraid. He doesn't just say, don't be afraid. He don't just say, you're a bunch of sissies, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid, but instead... Remember the Lord who was great and awesome. But he also doesn't say God will fight for you, which had been true all through Israel's history, but rather he says to remember your great and awesome God and fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. For the glory of and in the power of God Himself, fight for your family and your home. I'd love to linger here, but we've got to move on. We'll come back to this in application. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Nehemiah's urgings and encouraging seems to have worked pretty well. Even the enemies heard that their plan had been found out and not only that, but that God had frustrated their secret plans. No surprises, no secret raids, no covert terrorism. Now the Jews were armed, they were motivated, and they were ready for any attacks. And so work resumed on the wall. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. But now this work has a modified tone, 16 through 18. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Stop there for a second. Now man, these these verses are powerful to me. What we see here is a people, a people, who are engaged not only in work, but who are battle ready and prepped for immediate action if needed. Half of Nehemiah's servants worked while half held down the armory making sure that their armaments were ready at a moment's notice. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, which was a very welcome shot in the arm, I'm sure. And then in verse 17, we have what I think is the most vivid picture in this whole book. The burden carriers were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Now can you see that? Working with one hand, battle ready with another. A load of raw material in one hand and a sword in the other. 
this is what it looks like to do the work of God. What a picture of readiness and willingness. Wow. And then in the first part of verse 18, every builder carried their sword strapped to their side. Nobody who was working didn't have a sword by their side. What about Nehemiah? The rest of 18 through 20. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. The man with the trumpet was right beside Nehemiah. And the trumpet was the rallying call. It was to be Nehemiah's job to let everybody know if they were needed for battle. So he would sound the trumpet and call everyone to him if battles were to be fought. And since they were spread out over the mile and a half wall, they would need to know where to get to. And so Nehemiah would sound the trumpet and they would rally to him. He had a plan in place in case something happened. A mind to work and ready to rally at any moment where help was needed. Wow. And then we close out with one last description of the cost and danger of laboring and looking for war. 21 through 23. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This passage shows long hours for everybody. We labored at the work with half of the force holding spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. That's a long time, y'all. And then when it was time to quit working for the day, everyone was told to sleep in the city. They couldn't go back to their homes so that they could keep guard during the night and then work during the day. There was no off time. High alert all the time. Working as much as possible. Guarding at night. And even, even Nehemiah, the leader, and his brothers and his servants and his guards were at high alert all the time. It says, none of us took off our clothes. Meaning they didn't come home from work in the evening, get into their comfy clothes, get in their pajama pants, and then go to Walmart. Okay? No, they stayed ready all the time, even keeping his weapon at his right hand at all times. From top to bottom, from the least to the greatest... They all labored and stayed ready for battle all day, every day, all night, every night. Why? They had no choice. What about us? Are we called to be on high alert and readiness all the time? How do we apply this overwhelming passage to the work that we're called to in our time and place? Four F's. Fear, focus, fight, and family. Fear, focus, fight, family. Application point number one is fear. If we are going to do the work of God, we have to overcome fear. I didn't say we have to be done with it and never deal with it. We have to understand that fear is a normal part of doing the work of God. 
And what do we do about it? We look to God. We remember God. That's what Nehemiah did. We pray to God. Frighten people, discourage others, and help bring defeat. Deuteronomy 28. And the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. Scared people scare people. I don't know if we can do this. I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of afraid that if we like take a stand on stuff, people might get mad at us. Yep. It's going to happen. So what do we do with that fear? I love these two verses. Psalm 56, 3-4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in case you're wondering who that is, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now I love this because you got, when I'm afraid, I shall not be afraid. But what's in the middle there? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And when I put my trust in God, He does vanquish that fear because His Word is true. It's always been true. It will always be true. We know how the book ends, right? We win. He wins. So what the world can flesh do to me? Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body. Don't be afraid of those who can only kill your body. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. When I am afraid, when I am afraid, when I get afraid, when I'm afraid again, and when I get afraid again, I put my trust in God. And I turn to his word to find out who he is. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. Because really, what can flesh do to me? You kill me, you send me to heaven. I could think of worse things. Overcoming fear and discouragement, we have to look at God. We have to remember God. And then faith will replace and overcome your fear. Don't look at God through your situation. Look at your situation through God. When you are afraid. And you will be afraid. You're not wrong or bad to be afraid. But there's a better way. When fear comes, trust in God. Focus. When the work is before us, we have to be praying and working. We have to petition God and we have to do what's in front of us to do. Moms, you ever felt overwhelmed? So do you stop? Calgon, take me away! That may work for maybe even a couple hours. But when you get out of the tub, some kid's eating the cushions out of the couch. Right? So go in there, Calgon, pray for a little while, and then get out and spank his butt and say, don't eat the cushions of the couch. Pray and work. You've got to be focused. We focus ourselves by praying and we focus ourselves by doing. We have to do both. 
We have to be ready and willing to do whatever, whatever is next. I am not going to tell you, just go out and pray and everything will be alright. Go out and pray and work. Go out and pray and do in your community, at your job, in your home, here today. Pray without ceasing. And work. Focus. Focus on what's in front of you. And focus it through the lens of prayer and the action that you should take as a result of what's the next right thing to do so that I can love God, love my neighbor, and get some good out of this for myself. Pray and do. Fear, focus, fight. Listen to me, beloved. We are in a battle. You know what you call a soldier who's in a battle and don't know he's in a battle? You call him dead. We fighting? What's going on? I mean, seriously. I want to raise your awareness today that we are in a war. You are, if you are, well, if you're not a Christian, you're in a war, but you're dead. If you are a Christian, you are in a war and the enemy is not going to stop. So what do we do? We fight! But I would kind of want to change your mind about fighting a little bit. How do we fight? Listen to me. Incredibly important. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Jesus already won. Ephesians 6. Listen to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to... What? Read the word out loud. Stand. Say it again. Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What's the posture here? Sword, shield, stand. You stand on ground that is already won. We're not advancing. We're standing on the ground that God has already given us. They didn't go outside of Jerusalem trying to get new land. They were just trying to defend the land that was already theirs. So our fight is not an an offensive fight with a front that's moving out. Our fight is a defensive fight standing the ground that we've already won. We are called to stand when we fight. And you are fighting. You may not be fighting well. You may be getting your teeth handed to you. But you are fighting if you're a Christian. And if you're engaged in the work of God at all, you are fighting. And what I would say to you is stand. Stand firm on what? On God whose word I praise. In God I trust. What can flesh do to me? That's standing. Come on. Bring it. I win because He won. We don't have to go out into the world to find trouble. Trouble will come to us. And when it does, individually, familial, and corporately, we will stand. 
Don't put on your PJs. Put on your armor and stand. Fear, focus, fight, and finally family. It is incredibly peculiar to me that Nehemiah did what he did. He stations these people by their clans near the wall, family units. <laughs> you want to talk about the work of God? Family units standing their ground in the place where they are, where they live. The central role of the family in the plan of God cannot be overstated. And I'll go a little bit further. The peculiar role of the husband and father is even more important. There is a pandemic of fatherlessness in our culture. And the walls are down in America. May it not be so in the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner that your prayers may not be hindered. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Nehemiah said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Men! Stand up. Be a husband. Be a father. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He is talking to the men. She said, I don't know if I can do that. No, you can't do that. But God can do it through you. Be a husband. Be a father. You say, well, I'm not in a family. I'm not married. Find somebody around here to love on and to encourage and take underneath your wing and fight for them. <sighs> Ladies, you're going, what should I do? You should fight too. you got swords. You're with these kids front line every day most of the time. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying you don't fight. You fight. And so I'm a single. What do I do? You fight. And you fight for the family. You fight for your family. You honor your mother and your father, which is the first commandment with a promise. Everybody's included. Everybody fights. But husbands and fathers, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Guys, that's up to you. Nehemiah knew that. And he rallied the men of Jerusalem to do what they're supposed to do. And they labored and they fought and they kept guard and they worked from sunup to sundown and they kept guard at night and they woke up sleepy and they picked up their sword again and they picked up their wheelbarrow again and they went back to work. And they stood ready all day long to fight the fight for their brothers, their sons, their daughters, their wives and their homes. What if we developed that mindset, men? that I wake up again to do it again and I do it again and I do it again. In the power that God supplies. To help overcome fear, to help us focus, to help us fight. 
in the context of the family. That's where all of this work of God is going to begin in this place. We don't have a choice. So what do we do? We stand. And I would rally the men of Providence Bible Church, stand up and be a man. And see what happens as far as the work of God. Let's pray. God, what you say to us is challenging. And that's good. What you say to us is not within our own ability to carry out. And that's great because it makes us turn to you. God, our walls are broken down in places. There are low spots. Maybe we're doing some work. I've heard of work that's going on. I've heard husbands and wives and even kids saying, this is what we're doing a little different. We've walked the walls. We've seen what needed repaired and rebuilt and built. And we're starting to work on it. Praise you for that, God. But when fear and discouragement comes, and it will, if it's not already, God, give us a heart, a mind, a passion to look to you. To be at the ready. To build and to fight. To stand the ground that you have purchased for us through the blood of Jesus. And may we as individual families and may we as a faith family stand victoriously and build relentlessly so that you get glory in us and through us. This is for you and we get good because of it, God. May we never forget that. Help us to do the word that we've been presented with today, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated.